That, I think, is the biggest difference between men and women. You know, men just have brute strength. They can move incredible loads over time, over distance. But I think with women, even though we're a little bit smaller and have less mass and maybe can't move as much weight, our ability to adapt to stimuli is is different than men's. And I think that's where we capitalize in helping women to train and optimize their performance is harnessing that ability. and welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Dr. Julie Fouché, family physician and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring you information and inspiration to help bridge the gap between fitness and medicine and support your journey toward your healthiest self. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. All right, well, welcome to Pursuing Health. I am really excited to be here today with Dr. Carla DiGirolamo, who is an expert in women's health and all aspects of women's health in the full range of the life cycle. So she is double board certified as an OBGYN, uh, reproductive endocrinologist specializing in women's performance and menopause health. She's also a CrossFit level one trainer, did her MDL one, a precision nutrition certified nutrition coach and an avid CrossFit athlete as well as a recreational athlete. Um, she's currently a partner at Boston IVF, where she spent the last 15 years practicing as a reproductive endocrinologist, specializing in infertility and hormonal physiology and reproductive age and menopausal women. And in a year or year plus, she plans to retire from Boston IVF and launch her own practice, focusing on women's performance endocrinology, working full-time, pursuing her lifelong passion in the world of fitness and sport. So very excited to have you here, Dr. Carla, because we always have questions about women's health and you have a lot of experience in this area and specifically the experience of being a CrossFit athlete yourself and focused on performance. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you for having me, Julie. I'm thrilled to be here. I'd love to just start about your hear a bit about your background. I mean, you say that this is your lifelong passion is really pursuing fitness and women's health relative to to fitness. So what is your personal background in fitness before you found CrossFit? So I grew up in a very athletic family. My father was a semi-pro football player and uh, he was really, he promoted athletics in, in me, my siblings from a very young age. I played softball from the time I was seven. I played high school sports. I didn't play sports in college because I had had a, um, a surgery on my right leg in mm-hmm. at the end of high school. So that kind of took me out of commission for college. But at that point, I was in pre-med studying a lot anyway. And so <laughs> I was more of a gym athlete after that. So I've done just about everything. And then after residency and fellowship, I took up competitive tennis. So I played okay. tennis for a long time. And uh, so again, I was always in the gym. I always played sports, team sports. And um, and then I found CrossFit when I was 45, because every year on my birthday, I always vowed to do something that was going to make me fitter the next year going forward. And so when I turned That's 45, awesome. I said, you know, I've been doing group fitness and I really need something else. And right down the street from Boston IVF was a CrossFit box. No way. And so, yeah. And so I, I went in one day and I said, what is this all about? And um, they kind of threw me in there and I'm like, oh, my God, I haven't 
jump rope since I was eight. <laughs> I haven't stood on my head until, you know, for the last 25 years. It was an interesting wad with like, you know, jump rope and handstands and things like that. Always the and, first workout uh, is always <laughs> right? always interesting when you get those those skills that come up. It's so true. And and then I was hooked after that. And my my own personal fitness just took leaps and bounds. Um, I was in the best shape of my life um, after doing CrossFit. And I'm continuing to do that. And then um, when the MDL1 happened, I, um, I I did that. That was in 2018. I was the second graduating class. And, and that really was the most inspiring thing I, I have done in fitness. It was incredible. And just meeting other doctors, you know, the whole concept of, you know, a- athleticism is what was like always on the sideline, you know, mm-hmm. and I became a physician and it, they always ran in parallel. They never came together, but mm-hmm. it was after the MDL one that they came together. And finally and it started like, to make sense. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, mm-hmm. and then it's like, well, how do I work this into my everyday practice as a fertility doctor? And so, you know, I would, I would try to do it, but you know, women trying to get pregnant and having trouble getting pregnant really don't want to be out there exercising. They're afraid. There's a lot, a lot of fear out there. Mm-hmm. And then my practice kind of took a turn. We were purchased by another entity. And so, um, we lost our majority control. And so mm-hmm. now I was like, you know what? I got to do something on my own. I am going to pursue my dream. I'm going to open up my own online coaching business. So mm-hmm. I did that. And then I started noticing that all these menopausal age women in their mid 40s and 50s were my clients and Mm -hmm. complaining about menopause. And I said, okay, I'm going to get a certification as a menopause health practitioner. So I did that. And then like all these elite athletes started coming to me <laughs> and, and that's, that's how it began. And then, um, and then I was connected with, uh, with Nate through Erica Snyder, one of your amazing coaches at, at mm-hmm. Wild Health. And, um, and here I am. So I just decided this is really taking off. I'm so passionate about it and, um, I can't wait to do it full time. Mm-hmm. Super exciting. And I know we're very excited to have you at Wild Health as a resource um, with all of your, your knowledge and experience. So I, you, you know, I love that you have looked at women's health across the full spectrum, like you said, and it just came based on demand, based on the patients that you were seeing. And so I'd love to spend some time talking about a few of those different scenarios that you interact with frequently and just breaking down some general information for people. But before we do that, maybe we could start with just looking at, you know, the the differences between men and women, we have this menstrual cycle where things are not the same throughout the course of a month, and how you would advise or look at that or advise women to look at that, as they may alter their training or their nutrition or just their general lifestyle approach during those different phases of the cycle. Sure. So yes, the menstrual cycle is the biggest difference. And the other thing that's different is a woman's ability to adapt. So when you think about when women get pregnant, what the heart does, the heart has to handle 50% more cardiac output than it did before pregnancy. Mm-hmm. The lungs increase their capacity, you know, the ribs expand and, you know, the, the, the abdomen has to accommodate now, a you know, potentially eight pound human being. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, there's changes in cartilage, just changes all over the body. And the adaptation of the cardiovascular system that a woman has to do is really profound. So, and, you know, 
it's a very, very highly conserved, very important thing because it's it's the perpetuation of the species. And so a woman's ability to adapt, which essentially is what fitness is, you know, when we when we do the MDL one and we do all think about CrossFit methodology, what what is it? It is adaptation to the stimulus. And so women have a particularly incredible ability to adapt as evidenced by their ability to adapt in pregnancy. And and the shocking thing is that seemingly very unhealthy and unfit people can go through pregnancy very easily. So even so imagine a fit person, imagine an elite athlete and what they their adaptation is uh, is capable mm-hmm. of. So that I think is the biggest difference between men and women. You know, men just have brute strength. They can move incredible loads over time, over distance. But I think with women, even though we're a little bit smaller and have less mass and maybe can't move as much weight, our ability to adapt to stimuli is is different than men's. And I think that's where we capitalize in helping women to train and optimize their performance is harnessing that ability. I um, love that. And I, I just so listen to that. All the women listening is that you are great at adapting and just just even thinking about that in day to day life as a maybe a mantra or an affirmation because it comes in so many different ways. And I think, you know, just thinking about women in general, uh, um, I think are built to be able to handle a lot of different types of things um, coming at them at once, whether it's fit, fitness adaptation or adapting to pregnancy or just adapting to day to day life. Yeah, it, it's true. I mean, you know, any any of us who are, are married to our male counterparts, you know, when when they have a cold, the world stops. When we have a cold, we <laughs> the just man cold. go to work and yeah, the man cold. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and the menstrual cycle is a vital sign mm-hmm. for that the adaptive ability, and so that's where we kind of have to look is, you know, when a woman is in her optimal health, her menstrual cycles are going and we can train to those menstrual cycles. And that's different for every woman, but there are some basic principles of, you know, what types of training and the way um, nutrients are metabolized during certain parts of the cycle that can be, um, that can be capitalized on. But when menstrual cycles go away, something something's wrong and usually what's happening is it's bringing in another endocrine pathway and that is the stress response and so that is another equally powerful pathway because that is the pathway that governs our survival mm-hmm. so we have two incredible pathways the one that governs procreation and the one that governs survival and they they come together and so managing that stress response can really help to optimize the menstrual cycle because oftentimes when women lose their menstrual cycles, it's because that stress response is ramped up in a way that's telling the body, you know what, there's a bear in the woods that's waiting to eat you. This is not a good time to procreate. So mm-hmm. we're going to shut down the menstrual mm-hmm. cycle. And it's okay. another beautiful gift that we have as women that we have that vital sign that tells us, hey, you know, that stress response is really um, overpowering here versus in men, you don't have that, that indicator. So it can be, you know, have to pay attention to other signs. So it is like to think about all the other reasons, you know, when you get your period every month, like all the reasons why this is a great thing that we have. Yeah, so true. And I deal with this a lot in the infertility world, um, because there is so much stress surrounding the inability to get pregnant. 
Um, and, and we actually at Boston IVF were one of the first centers to have a dedicated wellness center where we have mm-hmm. acupuncturists and therapists and mm-hmm. people in mind body programs to really help mitigate that stress response. And, um, it's the real deal. Um, because, mm-hmm. it, you know, I, I don't mean to be dramatic, but I don't think I'm overstating it when, you know, this is what, is responsible for the existence of the human race is is the reproduction and the survival and mm-hmm. and their powerful pathways that if we can harness it in fitness mm-hmm. that's the holy grail i love it and i want to come back to infertility next but but just looking at the, the menstrual cycle say we have a woman of reproductive age who's having regular cycles how can we leverage those different phases of the cycle when we're thinking about our training or our nutrition So every woman is different. And this is borne out in the literature, because when you dig into the literature, and you start looking at training to menstrual cycles and things like that, there's so much heterogeneity or variation among every woman's normal menstrual cycle, that the way she's going to train in her first phase, the like, say, the follicular phase, the first 10 days before ovulation, the way she's going to train may be a little bit different than someone else in that phase, because maybe her follicular phase is a little bit longer. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to do is to use the wearable technology and look at at the the recovery parameters like HRV and resting Mm -hmm. heart rate and things like that over her menstrual cycle, get some basic data and plot, you know, the, that HRV along the menstrual cycle and look for patterns. And then when you can put those two things together, then you can say, okay, maybe this is how we're going to train during her follicular phase. You know, maybe this is when she's going to go for her one rep max. This is when she's going to do her heavy lifting. Um, you know, and maybe, you know, during the luteal phase, you know, t- you know, toward the end when she's having, getting ready to have her period, when her recovery isn't so great, maybe that's when she's going to focus more on mobility and maybe some skill work. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are some basic things. But I think the take home is that the menstrual cycle, even when it's quote unquote normal, is mm-hmm. very different woman to woman and her recovery parameters are going to be different as well. Mm-hmm. So true. So true. I'm finding that a lot of women now lately have been very interested in tracking their cycles and coming off of hormonal birth control um, to allow their own hormones to sort of re-regulate. But that also, I find in a lot of women comes with a lot of fear because most of the time they started those hormones when they were younger because they were having some sort of symptoms. So I would love to hear your approach to helping women come off of hormonal birth control. And what are some of the things that you you can do to smooth that process or to support their body's natural um, hormones and cycles as they um, as they sort of recover. Well, first, we have to think about the reason they're on it. I think the most common reason I see when people have been on birth control pills for 10, 15, 20 years is they started it when they were teenagers because the periods were very painful. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, as time goes on, um, that gets less and less. So a lot of times people deal with this, you know, when they're in their teens, early 20s. But by the time they're in the mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s, that settles out. And so if I have someone that's been on them for a long time and she wants to come off them, you know, really the doses of birth control pills right now are so low that you can really just stop them cold turkey. You don't have to wean off of them. And usually people will come off of them seamlessly. 
sometimes when people have been on them for, you know, more than a decade or two decades, sometimes, you know, the, the things might get a little wonky for a couple of months. But in general, um, I just take them off it. We kind of monitor symptoms, monitor the, you know, the reason why they were put mm-hmm. on it. And, uh, you know, just pay close attention to that and then manage symptoms as they come. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it just thinking from our wild health perspective, it becomes a great opportunity just to support health in general through making sure that, you know, we've got good nutrition and sleep and movement and all the, you know, the stress management, the things that you were talking about um, to, in general, support, support health during that time. Um, sure. When it comes to, so then I guess moving back towards, towards infertility, which is, you know, your, has been your focus for so long. I'd love to hear, you know, obviously there's a, there's a point where someone needs to come see someone like you, you know, where they've, they are experiencing infertility and they really need help. There's also, I think this in between stage, um, where, you know, maybe someone's experiencing some infertility, not getting pregnant as quickly as they thought. Um, what are some of the, the things that you look at or lifestyle factors that can play a role in in infertility? I would say nutrition is one of the biggest things. There is a very, very significant population of women who come to see me who are morbidly obese. At least a third have a BMI of 35 or more. Um, so obesity is a big problem. It's a big problem in America. I mean, let alone in the infertility population, but I do see a lot of that. Um, and it's interesting because I've had some of my fertility patients actually come to me as a trainer and I had done their nutrition coaching and their online training and they would lose 20, 30 pounds. And lo and behold, after four years of unsuccessful IVF therapy, finally something works. And mm-hmm. uh, I have this one couple in mind. They, um, they had their baby and, um, after, after going through training and then they, you know, just were kind of in the in-between phase and all of a sudden they got pregnant again on their own mm-hmm. after being with me having infertility treatment for four years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he emails me and says, you know, you didn't tell me it was going to be this easy. You didn't expect <laughs> number two to come. So I think nutrition is huge um, mm-hmm. in the infertility world, but also activity too, you know, um, just overall healthy, he- healthy lifestyle habits. There are so many people that are smoking marijuana that are you know drinking excessive alcohol. And, you know, so much of what I do could probably be cured if people really buckled down and made a commitment to nutrition, fitness, and those healthy healthy habits. Lifestyle is huge, in my opinion. Now, obviously, if someone has no sperm or they're blocked fallopian tubes, all the nutrition and fitness in the world isn't going to help them. There's certainly mm-hmm. other reasons that people come to see me. Mm-hmm. But in terms of optimizing it, and for a lot of the things like ovulatory dysfunction mm-hmm. and just unexplained infertility where we can't find anything wrong on lab testing, a lot of times lifestyle um, can make a huge difference. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about, because you, you mentioned stress being another big factor and having this wellness center at your practice. It, it's one of those things that can be such a vicious circle because, you know, infertility is stressful and then the more stress, maybe the more infertility. So how do you work with your patients on that aspect? 
It's so hard. And I, and I'm very thankful for our professionals that we have in the wellness center because I wouldn't be able to do it without them. Mm-hmm. Um, because that expertise is, is beyond, you know, my general knowledge of, of the psychology and everything that, um, that women go through with infertility. So having those professionals available is, is key and a, and a multidisciplinary approach is really, really key. And, you know, what I, but for myself, you know, before I send them to the professional, I I ask them, you know, what do you do for stress relief and spend some time with them during the visit of what is causing you stress and what do you do for relief? Because there's, you know, a lot of the things they can't control, but you can control how you deal with it and how you manage it. And we talk a lot about meditation. We have a lot of acupuncturists at our practice and acupuncture for infertility has really evolved as like a little mini subspecialty Mm -hmm. in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Um, So I recommend that people try that. Now, if someone's needle phobic, that may not be the best way to go. Um, If they're terrified of needles, acupuncture Mm -hmm. is not going to be stress relieving for them. But for most people, um, most people do like it, even just regular massage. Anything that helps them to relax. Mm -hmm. um, I try to dig into that and tell them, you know, just Take 15 minutes a day, close the door, turn off the lights and just spend that time on yourself just to try to dial down that stress response and that that sympathetic drive that mm-hmm. um, that that's that's always on. Mm-hmm. So um, so it's really very individual, you know, because what's stress relieving for some people may not be for others. So you have to dig deep and find out what their individual uh, issues mm-hmm. are. Totally. And I loved I love that contrast that you had at the beginning about sort of the stress response um, and fertility being like thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective and and thinking about the stress response really is neurological. I think so many people it's a very ambiguous concept for a lot of people to think like, well, of course, we all have stress and like how is meditation helping me? But when you really think about your nervous system and being in this sympathetic state and then trying to find ways, as you said, that are going to be different for every person. But how do you help your nervous system calm down and get into more of a parasympathetic state? And there are so many different tools that you can use for that. Um, like you said, from regular massage to acupuncture to meditation, breath work, just taking, you know, looking at even your overall allostatic load. So it might not even be the psychological stress. It might be too much exercise or not enough exercise. It might be over under nutrition. There's so many different ways, environmental stressors that our bodies, uh, you know, they're so sensitive to all of these different factors that contribute to our overall stress load. Yeah. And, you know, the, the sympathetic nervous system doesn't know the difference. You know, it was programmed to combat the bear in the woods, you know, back in, you know, evolutionary times. It was about the physical threats of, you know, being eaten by a coyote or a bear or whatever. And so, you know, our bodies don't know the difference between the bear in the woods and the the wad you're about to do. You know? <laughs> okay. When you look at the whiteboard and you get that feeling, you know, I mean, I, I know so many yeah. times that I'd, I'd go in and I'd be like, oh, my God, what, what is, you know, <laughs> and you get that feeling. It's like the sympathetic drive doesn't know the difference. It could be a bear. It could be the wad you're doing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the bear is the better alternative. <laughs> I was just going to say, doing. depending on what workout you have. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. So, you know, to your point, there's so many different stressors and that stress response looks at them all the same. Mm -hmm. It looks at them as a threat. And when the body sees a threat, 
it it directly shuts down the reproductive system because it's like threat equals don't have babies. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very primitive. Mm-hmm. And uh, managing that is not always easy because it's such a powerful, powerful pathway. It totally is. And just thinking about that in general, I think about exercise is such a good thing, but it is, it does put you in your sympathetic. And so, you know, one thing that I found to be really helpful for people is even spending a few minutes in a parasympathetic breathing pattern after a workout as you're recovering, doing some four, seven, eight breathing to help transition so that you, as you go into the rest of your day, um, you're not stuck in that sympathetic state as much. Yeah, absolutely. I do that myself, you know, especially as we get older, you know, I'm in my fifties and I'm in that change stage of my life. And my, sympathetic nervous system is not always tempered because, you know, don't have that estrogen anymore. So now more than when I was in my 20s and 30s, I have to focus on that because I don't have the estrogen around anymore to, you know, to be that sponge to absorb that sympathetic drive. So I spend more time um, than Mm -hmm. I ever did. And it really helps. It really, really, really helps. Sometimes Mm -hmm. just a long meditative run will aid in recovery. Um, But yeah, I do. I pay much more attention to that now in this stage of my Mm -hmm. life than I ever did. But for any athlete, you know, especially the high level elite athletes, you know, as you know, you've been there. Um, that recovery is so important mentally, physically, um, mm-hmm. when you're when you're training at that high of a level. Absolutely. And it's not always, you know, sometimes you'll feel relief right away, but it's one of those things that you notice the benefits over time. So I think it can be hard, especially to get started with something like meditation, because you think, oh my gosh, did that even do anything? I just sat there for five or 10 minutes. But doing it consistently over weeks and months and even having numbers track, like you mentioned, HRV or or other symptoms or things that you're tracking to be able to see the improvement, you really can start to, to notice. So super cool that you do that after your workouts. On the topic of stress, <laughs> I thought we could also talk about another really common um, scenario that I see in patients um, and it's especially, I think, in the CrossFit population is this idea of low energy availability or HP axis dysfunction. And I think we see it in men and women, but um, with women, like you said, we have that fifth vital sign, which um, is another indicator for us um, of our of our menstrual cycles. But, you know, this is a situation where you, I, I would see a person who is exercising a lot, who's doing a lot of intense CrossFit workouts, who is also probably experiencing stress in other areas of life, maybe has family, maybe has a job that's stressful, taking care of aging parents, and they're having difficulty losing weight. Um, and so they're cutting calories more and more, and then maybe even experiencing more fatigue, other symptoms that may come on. And and it's very counterintuitive because oftentimes you think, wow, I'm gaining or I'm gaining weight or am I able to lose weight? So I need to cut calories. But can you explain um, sort of what's happening in that situation? And then um, especially in women who are reproductive age, what's going on with their menstrual cycles there? Yeah, LEA is is huge, not just for the reproductive age women, but it's huge in the perimenopausal and menopausal population um, because there's so many other changes that are going on at that time that trigger people to say, oh, my God, I have body composition changes. I have to eat less and train more. Um, But in reproductive age women. Yeah. And I think part of the problem is when you've got women who are training at that elite level uh, or even really avid recreational athletes, they 
they don't really know. And, and even it's not even clear in the literature exactly how best to fuel them. Mm. You know, how much carbohydrate do they really need? You know, is it 45 grams or, or calories per kilogram? I forget what the units are, but mm. or is it 30? What is it? Is it different in different parts of the cycle? I think that's only recently been tapped into. And I think they're, you know, people are trying to figure it out. Mm. But the problem is all everything we know about fueling female athletes comes from the male literature. And it's like, well, women are too complicated mm-hmm. to study because of that damn menstrual cycle. So we're just going to extrapolate what we know about men to women. And, you know, it's <laughs> probably good you know. enough. Right. And then, and then we wonder why women lose their menstrual cycles, right? Because <laughs> we're, we're applying what happened, you know, what, what works for men to women and, and women are just so different. So, you know, I think one of the things in any athlete, whether she's, you know, whatever phase of life she in, is in, we have to explore body image issues, you know, with the with the elite competitors who are in their 20s. You know, they're on Instagram. They're famous because they're 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 top level athletes. And, you know, there's really nasty people out there on Instagram who's body shaming and all of this other stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I try to get a feel for, OK, is this a factor? You know, I will even follow some of my athlete patients on Instagram to see what are they dealing with? You know, is this a productive environment for them? Is this something that is a problem just mm-hmm. so I can you know help them? help them more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's what the um, what a lot of the reproductive age athletes deal with is, is that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing, too, is that, you know, they're so driven to succeed in their sport that they that the emotional part just just supersedes what they're physically able to do. Like, so the body sometimes can't catch up with mm-hmm. the mental motivation to win and to be mm-hmm. a champion. So that's when, you know, all the data and the wearable technology really helps and getting professionals involved that can help them fuel properly. Because I think with the reproductive age population, a lot of it comes down to that carbohydrate load and, and you know, when when they're getting it. Mm-hmm. But as far as endocrinology, from the endocrinology standpoint, what the body is seeing is there's a famine. There's no food. And because like I said, you know, the, the, the body doesn't know the difference between the bear and the whiteboard. Mm-hmm. So when they when the body is experiencing this kind of training and low energy availability, it thinks this is a famine. So if there's a famine, you have to hold on to fat because the fat is what's going to help you survive the famine. So that's the reason why you have that fat deposition and you can't lose it is because the body is like, well, there's going to be no food. And so we need you to survive. And so you need to have more fat. So that's what is happening evolutionarily and what the endocrine system is is doing and, and how it's interpreting that low energy availability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so counterintuitive, especially living in a world where for so long, the diet culture would tell you to cut calories and to eat less and exercise more. And so it can be very confusing for people. But like you said, is sometimes it's it's just small changes or, or some people can be so sensitive to, you know, overall calories or just slightly changing those carbohydrate um, numbers or timing of carbohydrates. Those things can make a big difference when you have a woman. So a, a woman who is not having her cycle because she's in this state of relative energy deficiency. Well, you know, what are the implications of that? I think there's, you know, you think about risks and benefits. Maybe they feel like they're able to perform better, but. What are the kind of conversations you have around around that with your patients? 
So if I have someone who comes to me for the first time and I'm getting to know them, I think I want to make sure I exclude any other reason why she may not have a period. You know, does she have thyroid dysfunction? Does she have a prolactinoma, which is a lesion mm-hmm. in the pituitary gland for our, our viewers or listeners who don't know what that is? That is a, a hormone that can be secreted that can stop your periods just because there's a little growth in, in one of the glands that comes off the base of the brain. So you have to kind of exclude these things. Does she have PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome? Um, so before I assume that she's in relative energy deficiency, I want to make sure that she doesn't have another endocrinopathy that is hiding there. So after we exclude that, and if we have concluded that, okay, this is this is this is red S, then we talk about when are you fueling and what are you fueling with? You know, what's the total energy you're taking in and what what does is that energy composed of? Is it mostly carbs? Is it mostly fats? Um, I think the awesome thing that that we do at Wild Health is that is that genetic testing and that that tells us what people tend to favor in terms of their metabolic fuel of choice. And I think that's really, really helpful information to have. And so, you know, once when when women to to your question about what the implications are, if she doesn't have that cyclic estrogen, the two big things that are going on is that the bones are going to become less dense because estrogen is pro bone forming. And in the bones, there exists this balance of breakdown and formation. That's how the skeleton stays fresh. Mm -hmm. The skeleton has to turn itself over so that it stays strong and it stays healthy. And turnover requires uh, deposition and breakdown, and that has to be in balance. Estrogen favors deposition. When the estrogen isn't cycling, it's going to favor breakdown. And that's why bone density declines in women who don't have their periods for a really long time. That's why their bone density can suffer. That's probably the biggest implication of um, not being fueled properly, losing your periods because of energy and defici- energy deficiency. It's a double whammy because if you're not fueling, you're probably not getting enough protein Protein, which is what the skeleton needs to turn over in addition to the estrogen. Mm-hmm. So that's the biggest thing. The other thing is the uterus. You know, the uterine lining needs to shed itself um, at least a couple times a year, two, three, three times a year, maybe minimum, so that the lining doesn't overgrow and result in a precancerous sort of um, state. So mm-hmm. that's the second implication. But I think it's the bones that are the biggest implications mm-hmm. when people lose their periods. So even though it might seem more convenient and like, oh, I don't have to worry about my period, there are some implications to that long term. And I think thinking about it, as you said, as a vital sign is another great way to think. Like if I'm in a state of health, my vital signs should all be um, sort of indicating that and and sort of using that as as one of the markers. Absolutely. Um, Wonderful. Well, thank you for sharing. Anything else that you think about in those patients? So when you when you notice this, it's it's usually going to be some combination of increasing or changing the nutritional approach and looking at maybe other stressors or other factors that could be contributing to that stress response. But anything else that that you think of specifically in in those patients with low energy availability or relative energy deficiency? I think that's the main thing. You know, I'm always, I'm always looking for the bear, you know, where's, where's the bear? Uh, Why is the body? 
yeah, where's the bear? Why is the body sensing this? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's why it's important, even when they're fueling properly, you know, mm-hmm. what is what else is going on in their lives? Are they mm-hmm. having marital stress? And they may or may not tell you this stuff. Mm-hmm. So I also like to dig a little bit deeper. Um, you know, if the bear isn't obvious, that means, well, maybe we need to have a different kind of conversation, one that, you know, maybe is a little outside my scope, but at least get enough information to say, okay, you need to go see my friend so-and-so mm-hmm. who can help you with, uh, you know, the psychological factors that may be going on. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And I love how you said that, like the, just thinking about that question, where is the bear? Because so often when you go through a patient's, it, if, if a patient is having any variety of, of health conditions, I think about autoimmune conditions being one that, that are really classic for this. If you go through a timeline and a history of what was going on in their life at the point where, you know, their Hashimoto's showed up or when um, they started to get, you know, sick more frequently or started developing more fatigue. And often those time points correlate with various bears in the life cycle. It's like, you know, the death of a loved one or having to move or a stressful financial situation or, or whatever it might be. And so I think it just illustrates how important these factors are that our health is so much connected to that overall stress load day to day um, and throughout the life cycle and in our bodies, when they go into that sympathetic response, the there's a variety of ways that that can present. It could be you lose your period. It could be an autoimmune condition. It could be diabetes. Who knows? Um, every person is a little bit different, but always asking that question. I'm going to think about that from now on. Where is the bear is a good way to, uh, to frame it. I love yeah, that. because it's it's there. It's there. If the cycles are gone, there's a bear somewhere looking lurking in the woods. Mm-hmm. And we've all got them. We can't avoid them. It's part of life. But it's then okay if we see the bear and we move past the bear. How do we help our bodies sort of calm down um, neurologically so that they know that they're safe? So I'd love to move. We started touching on this, but move a little bit more into the perimenopause menopause stage of life because there are always. So many questions. I think that there's still so much um, information that's just that's just not widely out there for women as they're going through this and, and navigating this stage of life. So, can you share some of the things that you're thinking about as you start to work with a patient who's in perimenopause? So, I, I think understanding her experience is the first thing. And it's hard if you're not someone going through it, or if you're a male and you'll never go through it, it's um, it's not easy to relate to it. But learning, becoming informed about, okay, what kind of things could she be experiencing is first really helpful for any practitioner mm-hmm. to just have knowledge of, of what women go through during this time. Um, so you want to be, have some empathy for, you know, when she tells you she's having hot flashes that are waking her up at night and, you know, she goes to work and she has this brain fog and she can't think straight and, you know, or she can't get on her exercise bike because her vagina hurts because there's so much dryness and she's never going to tell her male trainer this. Um, but just understanding that these are things that can really impact her day. Mm-hmm. So understanding her experience is one. The second thing and this is so hard to overcome, but every time I, I hear or see this, it makes my head explode <laughs> about this is a time when a woman has to, you know, be gentle with herself and she shouldn't exert herself too much. 
This is the absolute wrong thing because <laughs> never in anyone's time of their life does it apply that if you don't use it, you will lose it. Because what is happening when estrogen levels are becoming erratic and ultimately flatlining is that muscle mass declines just like bone mass does. Tendons and ligaments become more the character of the tendons and ligaments changes. And so it makes it, it, it's, it makes the joints a little bit more unstable. So that doesn't mean that you stop doing certain things. What it means is that you train to do those certain things. That means that, okay, if my shoulder joint is going to start getting more lax, I need to do more rotator cuff work. I need to pay more attention to the stability around my joints. I need to pay more attention to core work because as we know, functional movement begins in the core, is translated through the joints and out through the extremities. When we're younger and we've got all that muscle mass, you know, we can muscle that bar up with our arms and our, you know, our biceps and everything. And you know, compensate. But once you get to this phase of our life, we just have to pay more attention because the joints aren't going to allow us to do that. That's when you get injured. So you have to think about things a little more pragmatically. You want to get your core training well. You want to train those muscles around those joints that are vulnerable. You don't want to stop doing these things because that's the kiss of death. That's when you're going to accelerate in your loss of muscle mass and, and bone mass. This is the time where you got to really bring your A game and you got to ramp it up. But you want to do it safely and never have the CrossFit principles applied so much than it is to this population. Mm -hmm. It starts with the PVC pipe. Mm -hmm. And then once you have mechanics down solid, that's when you add weight and when you add speed. That mm -hmm. should be the dogma of perimenopause and menopause, but not to stop doing it. Because now more than ever, the muscles need to be stimulated because now they don't have estrogen stimulation anymore. So you have to make an end run around the hormones and start using other metabolic pathways that will stimulate the muscles in the absence of the estrogen. So that's probably the big thing that I want to bring into the fitness world for that population is that, no, this is not the time to sit back and, and relax. This is the time to regroup, rethink and bring your A game. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that. So with respect to training, it's not a time to shy away. Um, what else are you thinking about in this population as they're maybe starting to experience perimenopausal symptoms? I think women in this age group, especially women now. So, you know, my generation grew up in the late seventies and eighties when thin was in, it was all about being skinny. You don't lift weights. You know, I was in the gym when I was 15 because my father brought me there. My father, mm -hmm. who was the football player, brought me there. And there were no girls, no teenage girls in the gym. And my mother would have a fit every time he did this, you know. Mm -hmm. But nowadays, you know, the, 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 the teenagers are all in the gym, which is fantastic. But, but, but women in this generation, they aren't thinking they should be lifting heavy. They're like, you want me to do what with that barbell? And maybe they've never lifted a barbell before, you know, and maybe they're really intimidated by weights because, you know, we were kind of brainwashed back in that era that, no, you don't look weight because you don't want to get big. You don't want to get bulky. Right. And, and that is really what women are needing during this phase of life is they need that resistance training. And this isn't just, you know, your five pound Jane Fonda dumbbells and your resistance bands. You really should learn the Olympic lifting techniques. That is the best thing in the world because you get your core training and 
And you get that explosive stimulation to the muscles, which is what is starting to wane during mm -hmm. this phase of life. Mm -hmm. So introducing women to resistance training, like real resistance training, is, is another thing that I try to broach with them, especially for this generation of perimenopausal women right now who aren't used to this. Mm -hmm. You know, in 10 or 15 years, you know, the millennials, when they become menopausal, they're going to be used to being in the gym. So I don't think it's going to be as much of a challenge for them. Mm -hmm. But for your women today, Day who are in that, you know, 50 plus age group, you're dealing with that mentality because in the 80s when they were growing up, that's not the kind of stuff we were doing. Mm -hmm. That's such a great point. It's such a great point. And along with that, I think as you as you mentioned earlier, goes protein intake is something that often we are under eating and just takes a lot of, you know, thought and and attention in order to get enough protein. And I find I find that's especially important in this age group as well. Agree, because this age group also starves themselves. Um, it, again, the thin is in, and the first thing that goes is the protein. Um, and, you know, perimenopause and menopause is such a catabolic time of life where muscles breaking down, bones breaking down, that when you now starve those, those tissues of protein, which are the basic building blocks, it has, and it enhances that effect even more. Um, so yeah, not only protein, but creatine is mm -hmm. really, really key for this population. And, um, you know, the primary care doctor is like, what creatine? Or, what, that, that's just for the big, you know, muscle heads. Mm -hmm. No. There's some great, great research out there. Dr. Darren Kandow um, mm -hmm. has a great podcast on this and uh, the benefits of creatine in uh, particularly women and older people. Now, they have to be active. Um, creatine doesn't work for sedentary people. The muscles need the substrate and the creatine needs something to act upon. Mm -hmm. So it works well in people who are doing some resistance training. But I think personally, you know, every quote unquote, with the exception of certain, you know, mm -hmm. medical conditions, every woman should be on, on creatine. Mm, I think it's a great point and is, is helpful for so many more reasons just than muscle performance. Um, and so I love that you brought that up. How yeah, about a lot of neurological benefits too, mm -hmm. uh, for creatine as well? Yeah, absolutely. And it supports, um, supports healthy methylation. There's a lot of potential, potential positives to taking it. Also, one of the more widely studied supplements. So I know there's a lot of supplements out there that aren't as well studied, but there's there's great research, as you said. Yeah. The um, the other um, thing that I think is extremely common as women enter this age is is changes in sleep. What are some of the things to be considering to help support sleep in this phase of life? So, in my experience dealing with this, and it's huge. Um, for, for this stage of life, as you mentioned, there seems to be, it seems to be my bimodal. You got your, your people that can't fall asleep. And then you got your people who can fall asleep, but they wake up at 3 a.m. Mm -hmm. and can't get back to sleep. And they're two different problems. Falling asleep often can be helped with good sleep hygiene, you know, mm -hmm. turning off the tech an hour before, having a, a routine, keeping the room cold, um, things like that. The basic things we know of as sleep hygiene can help that person who is having trouble falling asleep. 
for the people who are waking up in the middle of the night, well, we have to think about why. What's waking them up? Is it hot flashes? Is it urination? Um, you know, incontinence type symptoms? Is it stress? Is it that they wake up and then the brain starts going? You know, we're thinking about what we have to do the next day and, you know, everything else. You know, the disturbing episode of Game of Thrones you watched last night. You know, <laughs> all those things just can circle in, in your mind. And how do you deal with that? So, Sleep hygiene isn't going to help that. What helps that, and, and I suffer from the latter. I'm one of those wake up at 3 a.m. people. Mm -hmm. Meditation was huge in helping me to beat that. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the tools that was for me a lifesaver. Mm -hmm. You know, when you wake up and, yep, you might have a hot flash and just get through it. But during the time that you're dealing with the hot flash, which is only going to be about 10 minutes or so, you have to turn your mind away from, you know, the stuff you have to do tomorrow and onto something else. And that's where focusing on breathing, focusing on, you know, a sort of mantra or other things in meditation that can really help you steer your thoughts away from that mm -hmm. abyss that you can fall into and then you're mm -hmm. up for the day. Um, so I think there's two different problems there. Sleep hygiene is good if you can't fall asleep, but that meditation and some of those techniques are really good for the people who wake up in the middle of the night. Absolutely. I totally see that. And I think um, for one thing I found to be really useful, especially if it's waking up with the mind going crazy is actually journaling right, right there in the middle of the night, just getting the thoughts out on paper. And then that can be really helpful in allowing you to fall back to sleep. Yeah, um, sure. The other thing that I was thinking about sleep, oh, was was the energy deficiency again. So I think I've also seen that in patients who are not getting enough calories during the day or maybe need some more carbohydrates um, that end up having frequent nighttime wake up. So that's something else um, that can certainly happen when you have low energy availability. Yeah, and it can make diagnosing menopausal symptoms very challenging because a lot of menopausal symptoms look just like LEA, the brain fog, the irritability, the mood changes, the difficulty sleeping. So even irregular I, periods. <laughs> yeah, 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 all of that. Um, it, it really is is it overlaps with with menopausal symptoms. So whenever I have a woman in that age group, Usually they're athletes that are coming to see me. The first thing is I, I do, I, I go right to the whole energy thing. And mm -hmm. I usually send them off to a nutritionist, you mm -hmm. know, because sometimes you can just tell, you know, they tell you that they've eaten three celery sticks and a couple of hard boiled eggs and mm -hmm. they just ran a half marathon and mm -hmm. maybe had a, a piece of toast, you know, when they got home. <laughs> So you can kind of know when when they have it. And I just send them to a sports nutritionist. Mm -hmm. That's the first thing I do. It's like, look, get your get your nutrition optimized, get out of your LEA state mm -hmm. and then see what your symptoms are doing. And if you still have those symptoms come back, we can talk about hormone therapy if they're still disruptive. Yeah, totally. Totally. Well, anything else that you want to leave us with, with just in general, things that you see commonly, things that you think women would benefit from knowing before we wrap up with our final few questions? I think as women, no matter what age group we're in, we're too hard on ourselves. Mm, we have yes. trouble being kind to ourselves. I'll raise and, my hand for that one. Yeah, right? <laughs> I think all of us, yeah, for yeah. sure. You know, when I work, I work, Erica Snyder is, has been my coach, my personal mm -hmm. coach for almost four years now. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the biggest things she and I have worked on. It's like, you can't beat yourself up 
when you didn't hit the mark. You know, mm-hmm. you have to look at it differently. And I think as athletes, we, we're just, you know, that drive to win just sets us up for that. And, you know, I think that's what we have to pay attention. I mean, whether you're an athlete or not, if you're a high achieving woman, whether it's in sport or in your career or whatever, to be that driven, the flip side of that is you may not be always so nice to yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really important thing. Be good to yourself and your body will be good to you back. I love it. I'm so glad that you said that because I think that is, and you think about too, just the voice that we have, that inner voice, that that self-talk and how much that could be to bear, you know, even just having that constant negative self-talk is putting your body into a sympathetic state. So there's so much, you know, this whole field of psychoneuroimmunology where we know our thoughts are related to our physiology, our hormones, our immune system health. And so even, even starting with the basics of what are the quality of your thoughts and are you speaking kindly to yourself has huge health implications. For sure. For sure. You, you you could be your own bear. That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, this has been awesome, Carla. I want to close with three questions I ask everyone at the end of the podcast. The first is, what are the three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health? I am very committed to my fitness and my nutrition. The world could be blowing up around me and I'm still in my basement getting my workout in. Mm -hmm. I make it a priority. My family knows don't come downstairs when I'm in the middle of my workout. Mm -hmm. Um, You have to prioritize that. That's probably the biggest thing. It's my commitment. It's my rock. It's my foundation. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I love for everyone knowing what those necessities are, those things that are just non-negotiable, like if that's for you, three workouts a week, or it's certain things about your nutrition and just sticking to those. And like you said, it's all about the consistency and protecting that, that time. What's one thing that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it or something you're working on? I think it's the stress reduction. Mm -hmm. You know, as much as I talk about it and know that this is what I have to do, you know, knowing the bear is there and figuring out how to deal with the bear are two different things. Um, I can identify the bear. I know where the bears are, but how do I deal with it? And, you know, that's, that's why I have a coach. I I think having a coach is so key because you, you oftentimes need help dealing with that stuff and you have to know when to ask for help. Mm -hmm. And having my coach, I mean, Eric is my rock. She Mm -hmm. really is. Um, and I am a different person in a, in a better athlete because of her, because, you know, she, because she helps me know how to deal with, with, with the bear. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. That's so, I love your honesty there because I think that's true for all of us is most of the time we, we know what's there and what we need to deal with. It's just a matter of dealing with it and being willing and able to ask for help and have the right people around you for those, for those areas to be able to reflect back to you or to be able to hold you accountable or, or help you think about things in a different way. Um, that's great. That's great. Yeah. And if I can share a funny little story that just happened this week. So mm-hmm. I was testing out a one rep max. Mm-hmm. And so Erica, Erica puts her coaching notes in the, um, in the app and uh-huh. uh, she says, okay, today you're going to get this. You're going to put 50 pounds onto your one rep max. And I want you to look at this as a positive thing. And I want you to look at it as hell. Yeah. And, and you're, you're just going to give it your all. And, and my knee jerk reaction when I looked at this was, Oh, Oh crap. <laughs> 
<laughs> negativity. Uh-huh. It was just negative. I'm like, how am I going to add 50 pounds to my one rep max that I did, you know, two or three months ago? That's uh-huh. just impossible. Of course, the negativity just starts to go. Sure. And so that's an example. It's like she told me, this is what you need to do. This uh-huh. is how I want you to look at this day. But instead, I went completely off in the other direction and started spiraling in the, in, in, in the, the total opposite direction. So that is an example of that struggle. It's it's like, I know what I need to do and I know how I should look at this, but mm-hmm. this is how I am looking at it. And yeah. I'm not sure I know how to change that. Totally. And just being able to recognize that voice in your head and being like, oh, there's that voice again. And and then we don't always need to listen to it or pay attention to it or give it give it our attention. So true. Last question is, what does a healthy life look like to you, Carla? A healthy life is me getting a good night's sleep. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. number one. Number two, getting up and enjoying breakfast, making sure I eat and then getting my workout in, doing what I love to do. This is why I want to move my career into this other direction is so that I can get up and, and not have to actually work because I love what I do. And you know, my family, my, you know, my family is also part of my mental health and my well-being and my foundation. Um, I have a wonderful husband. I have a teenage son. I have a dog and they are my rock. And mm-hmm. so spending time with my family is, is part of my healthy life and uh, getting up and doing it all over again. I love that. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for for sharing all of your knowledge, Carla, and your experience and your passion for this. I'm so excited for you, as you said, to be able to really pursue this passion with your your practice. In the meantime, where can people learn more about what you're doing um, with your coaching? And then um, obviously, people are are more than welcome to check out Wild Health at wildhealth.com. Sure. So I have a blog. It's called Athletic Aging. And so it's at athleticaging.blog. And this is basically fitness, nutrition, hormones uh, for women in their midlife age from like 35 on. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's so I have a blog there. I'm going to be starting another blog for my uh, younger uh, avid athletes and elite athletes, more on strictly performance, more Mm -hmm. for that age group. So that's going to be coming down the pike. Uh, But for now, people can check me out at at athleticaging.blog. I have a website called fitforlifemd.com. That's going that's getting overhauled. I'm I'm working on that. There's going to be a new website getting launched there. Um uh, but people can also find me on Instagram at Dr. Carla D. It's Dr. underscore Carla underscore D. And you can mm-hmm. search for me by name on Facebook or LinkedIn. Perfect. Awesome. Well, we'll check you out. And again, you know, exciting that you are bringing some of your expertise to Wild Health as well. And if people are interested in learning more, or joining us, that's at wildhealth.com. And you can also use the discount code Wild CrossFit or sorry, Wild CF20, W I L D C F20 is a discount code that's available. So thank you again so much. Thank you, Julie. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you enjoy listening to the podcast, please consider subscribing and giving it a five-star rating on iTunes. It really does help to get the word out to more people.